0: Welcome to the 30th episode of the Wealth Well Done Podcast, where we lean into the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Before I get into the topic for today, I want to share a, a story with you um, that I experienced yesterday. My family and I were traveling home from a uh, work conference in South Florida. We were at the air, airport. I had uh, dropped them off to to check in, and I knew there was a pretty long line to um to get through the check in, and we had, they had, my wife had three kids with her and all the bags plus the two car seat bags. So she had a lot that she was carrying and dealing with. Um, and I knew she had made the comment to me that we might not make our flight, even though we were you know, two hours there early, just seeing how long the line was. When I went to go park, uh, there was a ton of traffic. And so it took me a long time just to go park the car, literally quite you know, across the street and so by the time i finally did that i knew we were going to be starting to get close to um close to the pressure point of when you need you it really needs to get through and we need to get in and as i was walking in the this is at the port lauderdale airport as i was walking through the uh, skywalk from the parking deck to the uh airport where you check in the as soon as i opened the doors i saw saw something that seemed strange seems strange right off the bat it was a um, man, a white man in his probably mid to late sixties and a young Asian girl, probably five to eight years old. And they were holding hands. He was walking. Um, they, they were just walking slowly. They weren't in any rush. And he, as they passed by me and it was, it was pretty quick. And didn't have long to study them, but as I passed by me, he was mentioning something about, you know, Hey, I've got a I'll give you a dollar for for this. Is what I heard, and I just looked in her eyes, and she just had this very um, blank, submissive stare. She wasn't looking at him. She wasn't engaging. Um, in my, at first, I thought, well, maybe it's a maybe it's a you know grandkid. And as the as it went on from there, I, they, had, they had already passed. I just stopped. It. I was thinking, is this is this sex trafficking? Is this is this happening right here? We're at an airport in South Florida. Um, is a sex trafficking and I'm I'm carrying my bag plus the big infant car seat um, knowing that my family needs me just on the you know just down the down the walkway here and I I'm just I immediately say holy spirit what are we going to do do I do I go after them do I do I try to stop them what would I say I have no idea um and and I just I stop and I try to I try to listen I say what do we want to do what are we going to do and I don't hear anything and that's not uncommon for me to ask the Holy Spirit for something and not hear some you know, big audible voice saying, go tackle that guy. Um, and so I stop there and I listen, and they, by this point, I've already disappeared into the parking deck um, and I don't hear anything. And so I kind of reluctantly walk toward where my family's at. I get to the other people I'm with and I say, man, i I don't know if I just witnessed someone going off into sex trafficking. And, and I I was able to convince myself that it was fine because I didn't, you know, I asked the Holy spirit, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go, to go do something? But as I, as I continued to reflect on it last night, and even then I prayed, like, if if this is, if this is something, someone's doing something wrong here, you know, have them have a car accident on the way out of the parking garage. So that way they get caught. Um, but. If they, as I as I woke up this morning pondering this more, it really started to eat at me. I realized, wait a minute, that guy didn't have a bag. That girl was only having, only had a backpack with her. I just, I, I started to understand just how that submissive feeling in her eyes and just realizing like, these things just don't add up. And if they don't add up to, to be, that wasn't a normal grand, you know, even forget the racial piece this, It wasn't a normal. Grandparent to grandchild relationship, which is the only type of relationship that that should have been with that guy holding a hand, and um, and it it just it really started to eat at me. Obviously that that I I probably let this kid go, and I should have I should have absolutely gone after. And I was thinking about why didn't I? Like, well, I didn't know what I would do. Um, I'm not afraid of the guy. I could I could easily go beat a guy up I could go tackle a 60 year old that's not a problem but what would I have done how you know I, I was afraid of being rude point blank I was afraid of being rude and you know I thought I should have gone over there with the camp with my pulled on my phone and said hey you know do you guys mind if I this is exactly what I was looking for and pulled my pull my phone and actually try to take a take a picture of them and you know I could lie and be awkward there but and then ask questions and see if the girl you know you know is this is this your grandpa and see what she says and does she even speak English and see how that guy reacts? Does that guy take off and run or, or what happens from there? Um, and so I, I should have been ready for something. The other thing I was thinking about is, what else, what else kept me from, from acting? Just to, to go stop and ask the question. And the reality was, it was an inconvenience for me and I was being self-centered. My family was waiting for me. We were trying to make our flight home we we made our we wound up making our fight with plenty of time could i have spared a couple minutes to go and do that and maybe try to save a kid's life you bet what if we missed our flight who gives a crap and so it's just like how how self-centered was i and self-absorbed that i wasn't even willing to to be inconvenienced enough to go and 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 just interject interject there and so um it's with an incredibly heavy heart that i um that i'm sharing this but um i I, there's an episode that i want to replay and so back uh, i think it was episode 16 we interviewed chuck day chuck days from the international justice mission um they do incredible work in fighting uh human trafficking slavery um, especially in the sex trafficking area and so um i want to replay that episode where he gets into this it's graphic um viewer discretion advised um but I just think it's so important that not only do you hear this and know what's going on, but also you are just have, think this through enough ahead of time that you know how you would react if you saw something. Cause I thought in my head, well, you know, if, if, if it was that, you know, if they were flying here, then, you know, surely someone else is someone else would have done something. Someone else has already checked this, but maybe not, maybe not. Maybe other people were too cowardly or, or too self-absorbed as well to do anything. So, uh, And it was have a, just have some type of mental plan of what you would do. If you saw something that looked like potentially that, how do you do it? And and don't be afraid to be rude or to to offend someone. That's what I was. I was afraid to be rude and offensive. I noticed you're a different race than this girl here. Therefore, let me constru can see what you're doing. I didn't want to do that. So therefore who knows what's happened since then. So, um, I have certainly, repenting and asking for forgiveness there Uh, but i just i want to encourage you to be intentional with how you um how you would ever handle yourself if you saw a situation like that and i hope that this uh, this message from chuck um inspires you to to get involved here as you come toward the end of the year in terms of giving that people do um, or just as you're looking at resolutions for next year get involved this is a very serious deal that's happening all around the world that girl was the age of my oldest daughter. Uh, that it just kills me to think that that could happen to her. So, um, yeah, I hope that I hope this is moving to you. And again, sorry for the, the somberness of this, but this is this is deep and it's important. Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives from the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right, welcome to episode 16 of the Wealth Well Done podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scoville. And uh, in this podcast, we go after the tactical, practical and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Uh, last week, we had Chuck Day on as he went into um, a, n- a number of different things around, around the, the mentality and the philosophy of, of donors and how they, how they use very intentional strategy to set this up, not only for themselves and their partnerships, but also then for the future generations. Uh, today, I am excited, Chuck's back, so I'm excited about that, but I'm very excited to do a deep dive into the organization that Chuck works for, International Justice Mission. Justice Mission. Um, background on Chuck, Chuck has a, <laughs> he gave his uh, bio last time saying he's a recovering lawyer, uh, but Chuck has spent the last 25 plus years inside philanthropy with um, organizations that are both Domestically here and abroad, um, Opportunity International, Fuller Foundation, and um, what was the other one you did planned giving at Wheaton College, and now uh, last eight years have been with IJM as the director of planned giving. So, um, Chuck, will you? No, we're gonna we're just gonna jump right into this here. Um, actually, first, first, why don't you hit just briefly on what is a, a what is planned giving? Can you yeah. hit on that first, and then we'll go after IJM.
1: Yeah. So plan Giving, as the name kind of suggests, uh, is for folks who want to be generous, who want to be philanthropic and want to be a little bit more sophisticated and deliberate than pulling out their checkbook and writing a check uh, because there are significant tax advantages and financial advantages to giving things like appreciated stock and appreciated uh, real estate, um, giving IRA assets and things like that. So my role is to sit down with a family who wants to be really, really wise stewards of their giving and show them based upon what they own and what their goals are, both philanthropically and financially, what is the best way for them to give? What's the best asset to give? What is the best time to give it? What is the best arrangement to put it in so that it benefits the charity that they want to support and uh, benefits the family in the best possible way?
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right, thank you, sir. Okay, into the meat. Yeah. First
1: of all, what
0: what is IJM? What is their mission?
1: Yeah. So International Justice Mission uh, is a nonprofit uh, human rights organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. We were founded in 1997, so we are coming up on 25 years as an organization. Our mission, broadly, is to protect. The world's poor people from violent crime. Hmm. And it may seem almost counterintuitive, but poor people are are actually by far the largest victims of violent crime of any group in the world. And we'll get into that reason, the reason for that in a few minutes. Uh, But uh, IJM combats violent crime against the poor all over the world in varying types. The thing that we are most known for and the thing that we focus much of our work on is in the area of human trafficking and human slavery, um, which in all honesty, I don't think I even knew existed uh, until a couple of years before I went to work for IJM. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure if many of your listeners are aware of not only the problem, but the massive extent of that problem right now.
0: And probably not. And I hope to cover that here. I think I think a lot of people first got exposed to it just with the movie Taken, yeah. When when that came out, that that you know hit mainstream media in a way that that uh, all of a sudden people were aware that this was a real problem, yeah. Uh, but not to the extent no one had any idea, and I I still don't think anyone here has has much of a concept well. of of just how 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 invasive that is. Yeah. Um, all right. So so yeah, we we will come back to that. Will you will you hit on the the reason that IJM got started 25 years ago.
1: Yeah. Um, Our founder and CEO is a gentleman named Gary Haugen. And Gary uh, is a brilliant lawyer and has a fabulous, compassionate heart. And Gary was working for the Department of Justice back in the 90s uh, when the Rwandan genocide broke out. And... You know, some of your listeners may recall that in the nation of Rwanda in Africa, uh, over the course of about six weeks, uh, warfare broke out where about 800,000 people were basically hacked to death by machetes uh, within a reasonably short four to six week period. And the world stood by and did nothing. (laughs) Uh, And after... You know, after the genocide had finally stopped, the United Nations finally stepped in and said, we need to do something about this. We need to hold the perpetrators accountable. So they selected Gary to lead up the uh, group, the war crimes group that was going to go in to Rwanda and assess the crimes and then find out who was responsible for this and hold them accountable. Uh, These were the first war crimes that had been held Uh, since the end of World War II. And what Gary discovered when he went over there is that by far the largest victims of this genocide were the poor. And his, I think his biggest takeaway was that we do a lot of things to try to help the poor. We provide education and health care and mosquito nets and microloans and all these things to try to help the poor. But what these people needed was to somebody to stop the machetes. And there was not a single organization on the planet at that point in time that was dedicated to stopping violent crime against the poor. And so Gary decided decided to start IJM. And now we are the largest um, anti-human trafficking uh, violence protection organization for the poor in the world.
0: Okay. It's it is unfathomable to think about eight hundred thousand people being killed by machetes, which is not a yep. fast process, and and no one did anything. Yep. So
1: okay, uh, not not the world's best moment.
0: No, no. Um,
1: so when you and I first
0: had this discussion, we were we were downtown Peoria here, um, within two miles, one mile of of one of the poorer zip codes in the country. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this whole idea. We talked about the, the, the way affluence affects protection. Yep. And so I don't hold myself in any higher regard here, but we, we just talked about like, If something happened to me, if I went missing, yep. people, people are going to take note. People in the community are going to, there's going to be, there's going to be a reaction. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, and from the police and you know media and other things like that but if someone who's who matters just as much to god as i do a mile or two down the road goes missing it happens often and people don't like it it doesn't like it, it doesn't make the news people don't pay attention um not that people don't care about them but but it's just it, why is that well, can you can I? I think we kind of know why that is, but can you can you just elaborate on that of of how severe that problem is? And maybe not even in America, because in America we have, we have ways to amplify our voice as well. But I think in other countries, it's like that's just a completely different situation altogether.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, when you and I were in high school, we were taught that slavery ended at the Civil War, right? Um, and You know, I guess that was part true in the sense that the plantation style of slavery that was, you know, prevalent in uh, the United States at the time of the Civil War certainly did come to an end. But like most forms of evil, slavery didn't end. Slavery just changed shape and evolved into what we now call modern day slavery, which is sex trafficking and uh, labor trafficking Uh, which now is affecting more people than any other time in human history. There are approximately 7 billion people on planet Earth. And 2 billion of those people, which would include you and me and most of the Western developed world, we have what's called the protection of the law. Uh, if something happens to us, if we're the victim of a crime and we dial 911 or we call the police, somebody's going to show up. Police are going to show up, they're going to gather evidence, they're going to do their best to make an arrest. A prosecutor is going to take the case and present it to a judge. And law enforcement and the legal system is going to, perhaps imperfectly, but it's going to work on our behalf. But that's only 2 billion of the 7 billion people on this planet. The other 5 billion people live outside of the protection of the law. Meaning if they are beaten, raped, robbed, or enslaved, no one is going to come to protect them. Nobody is going to come to investigate the crime. No police, no prosecutor, no judge. No one is going to protect that person from violent crime And what's horrible is that not only do those 5 billion people know that, the people who perpetrate crime against them also know that. Right. And so the crimes just keep coming because there is no one to deter the criminal from doing one more crime.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. What is the scale of human trafficking today?
1: By the most recent count, there are 50 million people enslaved around the world right now. Uh, that is far more than the entire transatlantic slave trade uh, during the 1600s and 1700s. Uh, it is more, as I mentioned, than any other time in human history. 99% of that slavery is outside of the United States, consisting of both sex trafficking and Labor trafficking, which is, um, you know, I think most Americans understand what sex trafficking is from movies and uh, headlines. Labor trafficking is uh, perhaps even more prevalent um, and um, far more widespread through Asia, Africa, and Latin America than it is here in the United States. Um, The pandemic had a horrific effect on human trafficking. Uh, The war in the Ukraine uh, has sent hundreds of thousands of uh, refugees uh, to be uh, potential victims of Mm -hmm. of trafficking. And so, unfortunately, uh, within the last few years, the number of people who have been subjected to human trafficking has increased, um, despite everyone's best efforts to stop it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, not the world's finest moment here. When you look at that, yeah. uh, there was a there was a book um, I read a while back on the ruthless elimination of hurry. In which case, he the author goes into uh, he hits a little bit of that. You know, with all the clothes that people buy, they don't realize how much of their clothing and other and other items that they buy come from that. And it's not just it's not just you know kind of Western material products. There's there's the, the brick factories and other things like that too I know you shared some uh, some stories of of what happens to people when they try to escape when they yep. try to escape the labor you mentioned you know someone tried to escape and and they took and they cut off both their hands yep. like it, 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 it's just the things that are horrific that we can't that in in mo- in mainstream modern America we we can't comprehend that these things are actually happening yeah. Most of us can't comprehend yeah. what's going on in the sex trade.
1: Right. You know, from a you know, if you look at the two different components of human trafficking, sex trafficking is now a hundred and fifty billion dollar a year business. Um it is in the United States, it is extremely prevalent in the developing world. And it's important to understand that by and large, the vast majority of these kids are not sold by their parents. This is not a situation where parents knowingly sold their children into the sex trade. Far more common is a situation where an extremely poor family is approached uh, by a, uh, a representative, maybe somebody that's even connected to them through friends or family. And they will come to this extremely poor father who has six or seven children to feed and say uh, that they represent a wealthy family several hundred miles away that needs a nanny for yeah. their young children. And that they are interested in um, hiring this man's 14 year old daughter or 13 year old daughter to travel across several hundred miles and serve as the nanny for this wealthy family. The family promises the dad that this daughter is going to be educated and well-fed and well-taken care of. And to the dad, this sounds like the greatest thing that's ever happened. Um, His daughter will be well-provided for. uh, He's more able to take care of his other children. And, you know, effectively, he is duped into sending his daughter Uh, into a situation in which uh, she is obviously never going to serve as a nanny for any family. She's going to be immediately brought into uh, sex trafficking. And until somebody rescues her, she's going to remain in that situation um, of just horrific abuse. Until she does. Until she dies. Um, We see this all over the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, The only circumstance in which we ever see uh, relatives knowingly engaging their children in sex trafficking uh, is a new form of trafficking, which basically occurs online. And the situation in this case is the perpetrator gets on his computer and through one of the streaming services goes to a website, uh, a webcam that's been set up over primarily in the Philippines And at the other end of the webcam, um, a child has been positioned in front of the webcam and the perpetrator types into their computer, the sex acts that they want this child to perform in front of the webcam. Um, This is called the online sexual exploitation of children or OSEC. Uh, It is the crime that IJM uh, is highly focused on resolving before it spreads to other parts of the world. Okay. Um, and we're engaging uh, both the United States and other governments into trying to stop the crime. Uh, but it is the one crime in which we see an aunt or a parent, always extremely poor, um, that is directly involved in the trafficking of the child. No. Oh. Oh, okay. Can you, can
0: you go ahead? Uh,
1: I apologize if that was difficult for your listeners. That is how horrific sex trafficking is. It involves children as young as under two. Um, It is highly profitable for the perpetrators who engage in it. And it will continue to fester uh, until, you know, organizations like IJM are large enough and well enough established to take them down
0: yeah well I think um, I I think it's it's worth us being knocked off our comfortable pedestal and so I appreciate I appreciate you smacking us right between the eyes with it um okay will you now let's transition to what what is IJM doing about this we've talked before like IJM actually has they've got a model that works like you, you guys yeah. are seeing this work. So, what is IJM doing to whether you know, whether you want to go after this this new thing in the Philippines, or if you want to go after just the, the other model that you guys have have seen um, work in different you know areas around the globe? Well, how does IJM combat this type yeah. of uh, violent crime against the poor?
1: So, over the years, we've developed a methodology that we are seeing exceptional levels of success in uh, decreasing the prevalence of crime against poor people. We started off our work in Cambodia in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And I think our goal at that point in time was to see, could we rescue one girl? Could we get one underage girl out of the brothels in Cambodia at a time in which Cambodia was basically the pedophile capital of the world? Um, A pedophile could fly into Cambodia, and within three minutes of leaving the airport, they could buy a kid off the streets. It was a horrific situation. Uh, The prevalence of the crime, even in countries in which um, prostitution is legal, minors are never legally allowed in the sex industry. And so our goal was to see if we could actually do something to rescue at least one girl one underage girl uh, from sex trafficking. And this became the model for what we were later able to accomplish all across the world against multiple different crimes. We go into the country, we establish a physical presence and we hire three local groups of people, all indigenous to their country. We hire undercover agents. We hire social workers and we hire lawyers. The undercover agents go into the crime areas with a camera um, and undercover microphone, and they actually will go into the brothel where the miners are being held, or they'll go into the brick factory where the slave laborers are being held, and they will gather all the evidence of the crime that's being uh, perpetrated. And we will then take that evidence to the local police, who we have spent months and years investing in, training, working with, collaborating with, determining which ones are corrupt and which ones are not. Hmm. We take that evidence to the police and in conjunction with them, not on our own, but in conjunction with the local police, we go in and we do a rescue. And we rescue that girl from the brothel or we rescue 500 people from a brick factory. But the idea is that we are engaging local law enforcement which, up till now, has had little or no interest in protecting the poor and showing them that this is part of their job and it's an important part of their job. So they get the credit for the arrest. They get the headlines in the newspaper and on the uh, 11 o'clock news that night. And we want them to get that affirmation and that credit. Yeah. We then take the victims, which we call survivors. And we hand them over to our social workers and we've created a state-of-the-art program called Aftercare, which is specifically designed to help people who have been subject to horrific abuse, psychological, emotional, physical, uh, even vocational work. And it takes two years generally for a victim of trafficking to emerge where they can healthfully re-engage society. And then our lawyers take over and they take the evidence that we've gotten with the police And we take that uh, case all the way through the criminal justice system, through the evidence gathering, through the courtroom work, to the point in which a judge actually sentences the perpetrator to prison. And what we found is that you don't have to arrest all the bad guys. You just have to arrest enough of the bad guys that the other ones realize that the impunity, the freedom that they've been enjoying for years to take out this crime no longer exists and if they continue to do this crime, they're going to end up in prison like these guys just did. And so what we find is that if we arrest a certain number of people, the other ones will run and they'll get out of the business and they'll go do something else, hopefully something legal. But you don't have to arrest everyone. You just have to arrest enough so that the other ones realize that the uh, the game is up.
0: How long does it take to execute a plan like that?
1: We can we have found through the uh, measurement process that we go through that we can achieve uh, 70, eighty percent reduction in the crime within five years.
0: Wow. Okay. And how long do you stay
1: How long do you stay in an area? We stay until we win. Hmm. And we measure winning is when the local police, And the prosecutors and the judges are now doing exactly what they need to do, which is provide protection for their own poor people. Okay. So in the beginning, we're doing all the heavy lifting. By the end, we're merely monitoring and supervising. And when we reach that point, we can get up and go and we can go to another area of the world that needs our help. Um, But we win when... Law enforcement is actually taking over and providing protection for their own people. Okay,
0: I'm looking at some of the the numbers that you sent me when I asked, "What are some like? What's it cost per area to to do something like this?" Because I imagine there are people who who would want to just give, and I'll give you enough to to help you go fund an entire area to to do yeah. this work. Um, can you just? Just so it's coming out of your mouth, can you give a little bit of example, of like what it might take for for an office or for a, a region to to do this? Whether whether yeah. you know Cambodia or one of these other regions where you guys have had success, um, what type of costs are we talking about to to execute that type of plan?
1: So IJM currently has field offices where we actually do uh, the anti human trafficking work uh, all across Asia, Africa, and Latin America, where the crime is you know most prevalent. Uh, we're currently working in 16 different countries. We have 27 different field offices. We are looking to almost double that uh, by the year 2030. And in our goal, by 2030, we will be protecting a half a billion people <coughs> wow. from violent crime. People who have never been protected before um, will be able to live safely safely. And to um, you know do the things that you and I take for granted, right? Um, so by 2030, we are going to take the methodology, the the programming that we found so successful, and we're basically going to um, scale it worldwide. Um, the cost of doing our work varies depending on where we're working, and whether we are in a brand new startup operation or. Uh, a program that's been in existence for 10 or 15 years. Uh, For example, if somebody wants to finance a rescue, which basically pays for the cost of our undercover people from going in and gathering the evidence and engaging with the police and planning the rescue and arresting the perpetrators, uh, the cost of that is generally $7,000. And we have people who send us $7,000 a month uh, or $7,000 a quarter, or they may do it, you know, one time because they know that that $7,000 is going to remove somebody, uh, who is in a horrible position of peril and get them out. Okay. Um, for people who look at our work and say, you know, how can I help you start an office in a new place? Or how can I uh, cover the cost of one of your existing programs? Uh, that can be, uh, you know, more into the six-figure and seven-figure area. But for people who are looking for impact, for people who are looking to maximize, you know, their giving, we have found in nine different programs that we've done around the world, before we start the program, we have an objective third-party organization come in and measure the prevalence of crime. Whatever crime we're trying to um affect whether it's Asia, Africa, or Latin America, and we do a prevalence study. And typically the problem is horrific. Uh, in areas of India, one out of every three workers is a slave. Uh, in areas of uh, the Philippines and in um, other parts of Asia, um, child trafficking is off the charts. And so we will go in and we will do our program, and then we will do that for several years, and we will have the same organization come back and measure, did the crime, the prevalence of crime actually drop because of what IJM did? And in those nine programs, in each single one of those cases, the prevalence of crime dropped by anywhere from 50 to 86 percent during the time that we worked there. Praise God. That's amazing.
0: Okay, um, if can you talk to me a little bit about the rehab, the your yeah. aftercare program? Because obviously, someone can't go from being being sex trafficked for however long it's been. Whether they've done it for a day, like we know, if someone gets raped, it, that might be a lifetime of problems that are created from that. Yep. So, when someone goes into a, a sex trafficking situation, um, especially if it's you know, over some longer period of time. They don't. They don't get rescued and then say, "Great, thanks," and go on yeah. their way. Like they're not going. They can't. They can't step back into normal life. So, yep. how do you? How do you guys do your aftercare program? Um, what, what does that entail?
1: Yeah, I think this is the area of our work that we understood the least when we started, and have come to appreciate the most since we've done it. I bet. Um. You know, consider that this was a bunch of lawyers starting this organization and who had the dream of uh, primarily focusing on the perpetrators and getting them off the streets. Um, and you do a rescue and now you've got a, an 11-year-old girl um, who can't be returned to her parents because um, uh, they're not capable of providing the needs that she has now. And Eric, as you mentioned, she has been through horrific abuse. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's usually three years or more uh, that, you know, these kids are being trafficked before we're able to rescue them. Um, So we've got to undo three years of trauma that you and I can't even begin to wrap our minds around. Because these
0: girls are raped all day long.
1: This is serial rape, yeah, um, and it is it is horrific. And so we engaged some of the best social workers in the world who have worked in the whole area of of trauma induced therapy, and they developed a state of the art program of aftercare, in which we um, we will place this child in a residential facility. Uh, typically, we don't own that facility, but it's in. Uh, the area in which uh, they do have some uh, form of support in terms of family. Uh, But it's a residential facility typically owned uh, maybe by the Catholic Church or some other organization where this facility has been specifically set up to provide aftercare for people, typically young people, uh, who have been through this form of abuse. As I mentioned earlier, this whole program is built around physical, emotional and psychological rehabilitation, we even provide vocational training uh, so that when they leave the facility, if they're older than 18, they can actually go out and support themselves sustainably uh, because the last thing in the world we want is for any of them to go back into um, the situation that they were rescued from. Right. Uh, And we have phenomenal levels of success uh, with our aftercare program Uh, We have provided that program to organizations here in the U.S. that are trying to provide that same type of aftercare for kids who are rescued from sex trafficking here in the U.S. So uh, we provide that program to any entity that wants it. Uh, It has been refined and um, improved over the years. And it is uniquely suited uh, for the victims of sex trafficking and labor trafficking crimes.
0: Okay. I know we we've talked about this I mean you don't you don't rehab from this without like this is this is a supernatural work this is this is the love of Jesus that comes into someone's life that that lets them know that they're enough and that they that they've been loved through yep. the darkest hours and that that's yep. the only way that someone's going to come out of this so I am so grateful for the work that you guys are doing thank you for thank you for sharing this um If, if someone were to donate, so I, I typically suggest, and maybe, maybe I need to change this. Um, I typically suggest when someone's, uh, donating to an organization that they, that they look at it as a three-year partnership. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe for some charities that makes sense for IGM, it sounds like probably at least five years, if not a little bit longer that, that they come in. We, you know, last week we talked about the sustainability of, of, uh, you know, of a partnership there, um. When someone's giving, let, let's let's. It may you know for for those if someone's giving a substantial gift, what mm-hmm. type of involvement updates would they maybe expect to have with IJM?
1: Yeah. For your listeners who this is all brand new information, um, and they feel like you know God is tugging on their heart that this is something that they want to get involved in. Um. I would go, I would take this very systematically. Um, I would go on to our website and learn as much as you can about what we do. Um, IJM has local representatives all over the country uh, that you can sit down with over a cup of coffee and go deep on the issues that you want to learn more about and the particular areas that you feel like you want to address. And I would then very prayerfully and very thoughtfully decide, how do you want to do year one? Okay. Because if this is something that's brand new, unless there's some other area of involvement where you have some context for understanding the work that's being done. I would look at year one and say, what do I want to accomplish? What kind of uh, feedback, what kind of information am I going to get back in terms of what my contribution has done? And then after the first year, sit down and decide, what do I want year two to look like? Yeah. Um, For many people, this is brand new. And, you know, obviously from an organization that exists on private donations, we would love for people to dive in deep and be very generous because uh, that's going to have great impact for our organization. But we also want people to be with us for the long haul. Uh, we want this to be a sustainable partnership. We want people to get great joy and great fulfillment out of supporting this work, uh, that justice would be one of their buckets of generosity, uh, that they would support every single year. And so going, you know, going low and slow on this, uh, particularly in the first year or two is a really good strategy to go with. If you want to get involved at a substantial level, um, For folks who give $10,000 a year or more, uh, we have, as I mentioned, regional people all over the country uh, who will meet with them, uh, give them updates on what we do. We provide email updates uh, to everybody who supports our work. But for the people who really want to uh, engage another person and ask questions and find out the impact of their giving, that would be the level that I would suggest that people get involved with. Okay. It's also pretty close to the cost of what, you know, cost to support a rescue. Right. Um, You know, and the other thing is that we take trips to the field. We take trips every year where people can go along and they can travel to Cambodia or India or the Philippines or Guatemala. And nothing is going to give them greater insight and context as to what the problem and the solutions are than going on one of those trips. And I encourage parents to take their kids uh, who are old enough to appreciate it um, and understand it to go on those trips, uh, because nothing tenderizes the heart of a teenager more than seeing uh, how the rest of the world lives.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right, Chuck. We're gonna we're gonna stop it there. I am so grateful for the work that you're doing, the work that IJM is doing. Um, thank you for being on here and, and educating our listeners uh, of this as well. Um, <clears throat> if if someone wants to. If someone wants to reach out to to you or to the organization, what's the best sure. way for them to get a hold of you guys?
1: Absolutely. Um, you can reach me by email at cday at ijm.org. Uh, you can also contact me through the website. Um, but, Eric, thanks again for having me. Um, feel free to uh, bring me back anytime you like. Okay. And I appreciate your work.
0: Okay. Thank you. All right, everybody. We will uh, see you next week. Um, as always, if you're finding if you're finding value from this, um, please please share share this with someone else who, who you think this might impact as well. Have a great week. Thanks, here. sir. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player, and together we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.